Welcome to Make No Bones. I'm Emily Barton Altman. And I'm Toby Altman. Make No Bones is a podcast about poets and poetry. Each episode, we ask a poet to read a poem and talk about it. They tell us how they wrote it and explain how it reflects the broader priorities of their work. This week's episode features Mark Turcott. Well, uh, my name is Mark Turcott. I'm Turtle Mountain Chippewa from Turtle Mountain Res uh, near Belcourt, North Dakota. Mark Turcott is author of four poetry collections, including The Feathered Heart and Exploding Chippewas. His poems and stories have appeared in Poetry, Kenyon Review, Plowshares, North American Review, The Missouri Review, Luna, Prairie Schooner, and the recent anthology Stray Dogs. Since 2009, he's been a senior lecturer in English and creative writing at DePaul University. We talked to Mark about his poem, Battlefield. It's part of a series of poems from Exploding Chippewas that all begin with the line, Back when I used to be Indian. Back when I used to be Indian is something that someone literally said, and I mentioned this at the beginning of the book. There's a little scene, two Indians sitting in a bar somewhere. One of them says to the other, oh, where'd you get that scar on your lip? And the person is talking to me. And when I don't have whiskers, there's a, I have a scar on my top, top lip. And it can look like hmm, might be kind of a serious scar, but really it was just I got scratched by a dog or something when I was a kid. But he was kind of joking with me, where did you get that scar? And I said, oh, the same place I got all my scars, you know, back when I was on the reservation. And he said, oh, yeah, back when you used to be Indian. And we kind of chuckled about this, but then I realized he was kind of taking a shot at me. And there's this weird dynamic that happens sometimes between Indian people where we test, you know, it's not a very healthy thing, but we test each other's Indianness a little bit. Everybody always wants to be a little bit more Indian than the other person, you know. And it depends on who you run into. They take it more serious than other people do. Um, There's always somebody who's more Indian than you. You know, there's always going to be that person. And so I stole that from him, that that idea, you know, back when I used to be Indian. And then wrote, eventually published 22 poems in my book. You know, so that's my revenge on him, you know, taking a shot at me as I stole the line. And it's about this dynamic. And I've had other Native people who understand right away what I'm talking about but it's just this idea of back when I used to be what I am because am I always that thing you know are we always wholly ourselves and I spent a lot of my life I wasn't denying my Indianness but I would let people think that I just had a good tan you know and I often had to fight stuff you know kind of keep quiet about things because there was a lot of prejudice, a lot of bigotry and um, in the you know late 60s and into the 70s that I ran into. Um, the AIM movement was going on, the American Indian movement was happening and it was on TV and I stayed quiet through a lot of that except among people who really knew. you know. And of course I lived with my mother who was very white and my sister who was very white so it was fairly easy to assume, you know, that I was white as well. Um, But later, almost immediately, like when I hit 13, I just all of a sudden started letting my hair grow and I was scribbling things on my jeans like uh, America, love it or give it back, red power, and I just turned into this sort of radical, I don't know how, Indian in the middle of this little white world of lower, you know, around Lansing, Michigan, this community that I lived in. Um... So I pursued it without any real 
guidance, you know, my so-called Indianness. I mean, we would visit the res when I was a kid with those really short trips. And often my Indian cousins would kind of make fun of me and chide me about, oh, you're like a white kid, you know, you're not an Indian kid. And they were, they were messing with me too, you know, so I was getting it from both sides. But it's that, I don't know if it's a universal question, but I think anybody can look back and think, am I really wholly W-H-O-L-L-Y being myself? And I realized, especially in my kind of mid-twenties, like, man, I am not being true to myself. I was in, you know, by the time I was in my twenties, I was trying very hard not to be an artist not to think like an artist, not to have that POV. Because um, it was it, it seemed to be getting in the way of like just kind of paying the rent and getting things done and having relationships. And, and it took me probably close to 10 years to learn that really I needed to be pursuing that. I always do things backwards. You know? Rather than kill the poet, the writer, the artist in me, or deny it, I should have been letting it out. You know, And maybe that would have made me happier. But I really didn't have a lot of mentoring. Um, I was away from my family in my 20s. So I was kind of stranded out in the world. Uh, In a lot of ways it was good for me. In a lot of ways it was hard because I I was away from any kind of support system. Not that my familial support system was very supportive. But um, just often kind of a loner out in the world. And sometimes it, that also allows you to kind of recreate yourself a little bit and be, it's easy to get away from yourself. So that idea of back when I used to be this thing, ultimately when I started looking back at it, when I was writing the poems, I was already in my mid to late thirties. Um, it dawned on me that I've always been these things, that that thing that I am, that whole thing that I am is always there. It's just kind of there without my knowledge. And if I had been paying more attention, I think I would have seen it. So the irony of it is that back when I used to be, I am. And that can be 30 years ago or yesterday. Um, There's always that possibility in any moment of being less of ourselves than we should be. And then also more of ourselves than we could be. So um, it doesn't really have much to do with time. And that's a very Indian kind of thing. I th- <laughs> I'll make that very Indian. I'll make that native. Um, it's, and it is about messing with time. Yeah. Um, I discovered poetry in my Yogi Bear coloring book. You know, reading captions and coloring books and playing with the words and rearranging them to make them something that was familiar to me but other people didn't understand um, I do writing exercises based on my yogi yogi bear coloring book experience um, so that stuff has always been there and I've always been aware of it and for a long for a while I pursued it you know you're an innocent child and you're like oh I love this thing and it's who I am and it makes me special and my teachers often recognized it and and it was later you know maybe once I got to the white world you know, when I was 10 and then 11 years old, you start to become self-conscious about yourself, uh, self-aware. And being someone who liked words and writing and reading wasn't popular. Um, and I loved to read. I had teachers, actually, who tried to defy my love of reading. Like, they would insist that 
I could not read that book. And I would read it, and then they would still insist that I wasn't reading it. I would read it out loud to them. It's like they didn't want me to excel or something in reading. Um, and I think there was a thing about me being a res kid. They were like, how did you learn to read? Like, that, you know, with where you came from. So there's this weird resentment. I had a teacher literally say to me one time that Indian people didn't know how to take care of the world and themselves. And um, that made me feel really ashamed for a while. Um, and she said it like in front of, you know, my class, um, which really marked me as Indian in that moment. So I did all of my reading and discovering on my own. And that is, that's been tricky for me, especially as I've become a more known writer. And, you know, uh, I got into an MFA program at Western Michigan. I did that very late. And I walked into these rooms where people were talking a language about poetry, even though I had books of poetry and I had awards and I was making part of my living reading my own work and talking about my own work in universities all over the country. I felt like an innocent in these workshops in these classrooms where they were talking about poetry in these weird ways and, and talking about poems that I knew only in passing or um, I didn't have the training there are a couple three lines over the years from people a fairly weird disparate group of people um, they said things in their poems not necessarily the whole poems but just moments in the poems that stood out to me and made me made me see you know um, what is uh, Marianne Moore's thing about it's human to want to stand in the middle of things or something like that, that poem. And, and that just spoke to me, you know, uh, even someone like Patti Smith, you know, the, the, the rock and roll punk priestess, you know, poet priestess, uh, you know, her line, Jesus died for somebody's sins, but not mine. Hearing that lying on the floor of my mother's living room with, you know, gigantic earphones on listening to that really loud. It just awoke things in me and it was familiar somehow. Um, and that's what I got from books. You know, I would read lines in books, a, a really also disparate, very diverse bunch of writers. And just moments in those books would speak to me. So I felt like I had this other life that was kind of secret, you know, from my regular life. I played football and I smoked dope and, you know, um, I wasn't really a peer pressure person, but I liked having friends. I was social and it wasn't very social. You know, I couldn't find anybody to share my my passions with until later when I spent one drunken year in college in the late 70s then I started running oh there are people who read and like poetry and they're not shy about it and they don't hide it you know um so it's all that stuff about not being your you know that that narrative that I mean that moment in your narrative that always shows up over and over again about not really realizing yourself you know or letting yourself realize yourself I guess I think when you're a writer or an artist, you're someone who pays attention. It's just innate. It's it's what you're born with. Um, so I think we're we're paying attention early on and absorbing. And I mean, absorbing is a really good word for this stuff. Um, and then retaining is the important thing. And we're all so dramatic, you know, that we see everything. Um, I, I don't know about you. I've gotten to the point where. I can walk down the street and see more than one POV if I decide to, if I decide to hand myself over to that kind of weirdness, you know, that artisticness. Um, and I think that's important, and uh, it becomes second nature. 
maybe it's a little bit of my Ojibwe or Chippewa thinking, but rather than thinking that I I enter into the world and then translate the world as poetry, I feel like I enter into the world and perceive the world as poetry. The, the poetry is already there. And it's just a matter of recognizing it, acknowledging it, seeing it. Um, once you do that, then you get to add your own little weird poetry twist to it, I guess, you know, which makes your perception different than mine and your perception different than mine, etc. Um, this piece is called Battlefield, and it's from my book, um, Exploding Chippewas. It was originally um, dedicated to my sister, Jackie, who now has passed. When I first started thinking about this poem, I was remembering her kind of chubby little pink legs and her white stockings and her little blue sneakers. And I was going to write about that. And then panoramically, you know, the image just blew up for me so that I'm standing looking at both of us. And, and it's, that's kind of how this stuff happens for me. Her little socks and her shoes and everything are there. But in the larger image, like when I go to that space... I suddenly see everything. I see the street, and I see me, and I see the sky, and I see the distant hills, and I hear things, and it all starts to fill in. Battlefield. Back when I used to be Indian, I am standing outside the pool hall with my sister. She, strawberry blonde, stale sweat and beer pours through the open door. A warrior leans on his stick, fingers blue with chalk. Another bends to shoot. His braids brush the green felt, swinging to the beat of the jukebox. We move away. Hank Williams falls again in the back seat of a Cadillac. I look back. A wind off the distant hills lifts my shirt, brings the scent of wounded horses. This episode of Make No Bones was produced and edited by Toby and Emily Altman in Chicago, Illinois. The music for this episode is by Toby Altman. Interbang Press has just released a brand new broadsheet of Battlefield featuring block prints by Doug and Mike Tubles. If you're interested in getting a copy, we'll have a link up at our website, makenobonespodcast.org. And while you're there, you can find all of our old episodes. If you like what we do, you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Please consider writing us a review, too. It really helps. 